welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us we've got Christine Proudfoot. Christine is the Alzheimer Scotland Dementia Nurse Consultant for the NHS Borders. She's been working in mental health and has worked across a variety of roles, both in hospital and in the community, and now works liaising care across the borders. Christine, thanks so much for coming on to join us. Thanks for inviting me. I guess the first thing that we need to get a grip of is trying to understand a bit of definitions around dementia and Alzheimer's and also this thing delirium that kind of gets in the way a little bit as well. Okay, so I can start with dementia. Dementia affects around 90,000 people across Scotland and the prevalence does increase with age. Age is a significant risk factor. But just to be clear that, you know, dementia is not a normal part of ageing. It is a disease of the brain and changes within the brain. As you said there, there are different types of dementia. You have Alzheimer's, which is the most common type of dementia, which is a progressive decline. And then you have vascular dementia, which is a more stepwise decline. But there are also over a hundred types of dementia, but the most common ones are Alzheimer's, vascular, uh, Lewy body. You also have ARBD, which is alcohol-related brain disease. That illness progression can halt if people reduce their alcohol intake, but all the others continue to progress. And there are also other ones, CJD, which is a very rapid decline. But to bear in mind that people usually get a diagnosis of dementia when they're an older adult, but to bear in mind that there are people younger in their 30s and 40s, sometimes their 50s, who can develop it. It's not as common, but it's not just an older person's disease. Am I right in saying that in the younger age group, it's it's got a lot of crossover with other pathologies and with genetic conditions? Yes. Yes, it's often related to genetics, that's correct. Okay, and how does dementia tie in with delirium? Okay, so as I stated there, dementia is a progressive, usually stepwise and vascular disease. Delirium is rapid onset. And another complicating factor is that someone with dementia can develop delirium. So how do you tell the difference? The key is the acute onset. So if someone with dementia, for example, had memory problems and then rapidly they were hallucinating, they were disorientated, they were not sleeping, then you would keen to exclude a delirium, a, a cause of an infection or a medication or something that was causing the delirium. But the key is it's rapid, whereas dementia, it's progressive. And symptoms of delirium, are they transient? Yes, you can have different types of delirium. Someone could be quite quiet, not usually their self, maybe not eating or drinking as much, and it can fluctuate. 
whereas someone could have hypoactive delirium where they're very driven, not sleeping. Again, you know, the hallucinating, misinterpreting what's going on. And if the person has a dementia as well as a delirium, then that can be, you know, a very frightening experience. But the delirium, the key is identifying it as a delirium and treating that delirium. Okay, so for a lot of basics responders, we've got kind of two times where we are going to end up dealing with adults with delirium and with dementia. Mm -hmm. And I guess the first of those is where their dementia or their Alzheimer's or their possibly delirium is the primary cause of why 999 has been called. And the other group are where something else has happened. It's so, you know, passenger in a car accident or has been involved in some medical mishap. And what we see as responders is confounded by the fact that they have an underlying diagnosis of, of dementia. Mm-hmm. How, how are we best to sort of approach adults with with the dementia? Well, the key is communication and, you know, like you would approach anyone in those circumstances that you've described, you know, an emergency, quite traumatic circumstance or situation. And you're clearly needing to assess the situation and their presentation. But I would say that the key things would be to remain calm, ideally gain eye contact and speak clearly and slowly to the person. Try and ensure that you have their attention, even just by touching their arm and seeing their name. A key thing is to ensure that you have their name. You know, they might be known as Elizabeth, but actually that they've always been referred to as Betty. So it's really important to have their name and use really short, simple sentences and say what you mean. So if you're needing to do a procedure or an examination or ask someone to move, then do it short and simple. Don't complicate it and try to do, if possible, one thing at a time. And give the person time to respond because it may take them longer than yourself to comprehend what you're asking them. A person with dementia can often, what people would refer to as confabulation, they they would cover up what's happening to protect their own identity. So if you've found them in a place where they wouldn't usually be or, you know, the public are concerned about someone and they'll say, well, why are you here? That They might not know why they're there. Um, The important thing is that you've found them. So try not to embarrass the person and talk about familiar people or places if you know that, something that they will be able to engage with and respond to. And facial expressions and hand gestures are just as important as using words. Actions do speak louder than words. So that would be the initial engagement with the person in those circumstances that you described. So I'm guessing there's going to be a huge amount of this that's going to be all collateral history. Yes. And Often people are with dementia described as poor historians by health professionals and, for example, assessment of pain. So if you asked me, was I in pain, I would probably be able to tell you. But you really need to um, objectively assess, not subjectively, someone's response to pain. Because often you find you ask someone, are you in pain? And they'll say no. 
but on movement, they're grimacing or they're, you know, watching their body language and the, the changes using that to assess the pain, which you probably do anyway, but just to be really mindful of that in your circumstances. It's really interesting. We've chatted with folk about pain and about analgesia before, and it's one of these things that's phenomenally difficult to get right. Mm -hmm. And all the way through, we're told, you know, pain is a very subjective experience. Yes. But I guess when when the subject of assessment of a patient's own pain is is not going to work, it's kind of it's resisting the urge to give them some low level medication when actually they may be in severe pain and just not articulating. Yeah, it's it's using using your judgment, isn't it? Especially if you don't know the person and you don't know their usual responses. And there are tools, the Abbey Pain Scale, that you can use, but it's not always accurate. So you you have to use your professional judgment, your objective assessment, and using the analgesia to exclude any pain. And I've always been a little bit reluctant to use things like opiates, purely because I don't want to make people more confused, and I'm aware that there's a lot of crossover. Yes, I suppose it's, again, it's down to the professional judgment, and whether the person has dementia or not, if they require opiates, then they would receive them. But yes, you're being mindful that they may be frail, there might be underlying comorbidities, as well as a delirium and a, a dementia. So I suppose it's it's identifying what's the most significant risk that, that you need to manage at that time. Okay. I guess the next common thing that that I get asked is, particularly in hospital mm -hmm. setting, is nurses coming up to me saying, does this patient have capacity? Uh -huh. And it's presented as a kind of, as a, they have a habit or they don't type question. And, and my understanding is it's a little bit more nuanced than yes. that, particularly in terms of our role pre-hospitally, where we probably don't have access to all of the background mm -hmm. information. Yes. So you can't assume someone doesn't have capacity because they have dementia but they may lack capacity in certain areas. So they may lack capacity in making or retaining complex information, but they're quite clear on what they would like to happen. So if they'd fractured their neck a femur, they would need a, a section 47 for that procedure, but they may also require a section 47 form for their dementia diagnosis. But I always focus on the principles of the Act, and this may be a refresher for some of your, your colleagues, but I always think of these five principles. And the first one is benefit. So any action or decision must benefit the person. The second one is the least restrictive option. So whatever is going to happen, it needs to be the least restrictive. So if someone's going to accept oral medication, whatever that is, that's great. But if they're unable to do that for whatever reason, then you would then look at, at other routes and also about the person's freedom. So again, thinking about do they need to come into hospital or could we treat them here? Principle three is taking account of the person's wishes. Now, you might not be aware of the patient's past or present wishes, and they might not be able to communicate those, but it's trying where possible to take account of those wishes or, or evidence that you've attempted to do that. And principle four is consultation with relevant others. So there may be 
a relevant other, a power of attorney, which would be great because they can act in their act on their behalf, both financially, but also within their welfare. And principle five is to encourage the person to use their existing skills. So support them to make their decision as much as they can, but also if there are other skills that they can develop to support them to do so. So I always think if you think of these five principles, then you're not going to go wrong in deciding um, and someone that lacks capacity, what would be of benefit to them at that time? It, it's one of those sort of phenomenally difficult moments when I'm thinking back to a job I've done in the last year where there was a, a patient in a care home who had an established diagnosis of dementia and had fallen over and cut their head open. And actually, the injury they presented with was nothing you know, nothing to do with their dementia other possibly than, than issues with balance. But the patient was very keen not to go anywhere and, and just wanted everything to sort of go away and, and us to leave them alone. But in order to, to fix the medical problem, there's obviously quite a lot of interventions we need to do. And sat in somebody's care home with no access to any history, some fairly unhelpful care home workers, it becomes very difficult to try and make mm-hmm. these judgments. Yes. But again, looking at what's going to be of benefit to the person, what's least restrictive. You know, if, if you go through all of these, then you will do the right thing at the time. And it may be that, you know, that they already have a Section 47 form in that care setting that you described, or it may be that they need a revised one because the treatments or interventions that they require are different to what they would usually require. I'm right in saying that capacity is something that we should be assessing for everything that we're doing for the patient, rather than than just whether they have the capacity to say no to drip being put in or to a particular medication. Often, again, it's going back to the the communication. So if you come across someone that is dehydrated for whatever reason or they require fluids, then it's explaining to the patient, we need to give you some fluids through a vein in your arm. Is that okay? And then if they put their arm out, you have consent. They might not understand fully why you're needing to do that, but they are complying and engaging with your intervention. So I guess the next thing on my hit list of common problems is is going to be dealing with the agitated Mm -hmm. patient and working out how to unpick what is pain, what is agitation, what is perhaps delirium. Any suggestions in terms of, of how we can work around patients where the communication is severely impaired and we've got this kind of horrible mixed picture of a an upset, agitated patient, but no obvious cause? So that's quite interesting in itself. So in my line of work, we talk about stress and distress in dementia, which are behaviours due to what we call an unmet need. So... They may be agitated, restless, angry, resistive to care. Now, that may be because they're not understanding what's happening, or it may be that there's pain, as you suggested, and there's something wrong that they are not able to tell you what's wrong. But usually a patient who is restless, they're trying to communicate without words in a way that isn't clear to you or them so that's why we call it an unmet need so it's really important to try and identify what that unmet need is and often pain dehydration 
medications, changes in environments can be the cause or trigger. Or it could be something very simple, but it's not obvious initially. So something that I come across quite often is patients or residents who about three o'clock in the afternoon start to get quite restless, quite anxious, quite pacey. But when you actually understand the person, they were a mother of three, they were wanting to collect the children from school and prepare their meal, which is a normal behaviour. Now, you might think, well, she's in her 90s now, she's not got children at home, but in her mind, that's what she needs to do. So it's about entering their world and saying, I understand that you're worried about your children, but just now I'm worried about your dehydration and I'd like to give you some fluids. So it's about recognising maybe why someone's presenting in a way that they are, but responding to your immediate need and your circumstances. It's really interesting. That kind of concept of trying to enter somebody else's world is something that you know, often with the time and space in a hospital, you can start to get a, a bit of a doorway into it. But I certainly find in the community, in the sort of in the excitement of a, a treble nine, gets put in the sort of too difficult box and and you just crack on anyway. But a lot of the time there there is actually a lot of time and space where we could potentially spend more time with these patients and possibly get better care for them as a result. Yeah, it's just about trying to understand the restlessness, agitation, frustration is their way of communicating. So it's trying to, if they're anxious, try and reduce their anxiety and, and using those clear communication tools to reassure and make the person feel as safe as they can. And that's maybe all that you can do at that time, pre-hospital care. There are a subgroup of patients where their restlessness and agitation is at such an extent that they are either at risk of or actively causing more harm to themselves. And if you sort of you know, work through a stepwise approach to them and try to unpick the cause and there's no obvious cause that, that you can deal with and the patient is a threat to themselves, I assume that the last thing on the list is going to be looking at medication to try and reduce their anxiety and agitation. Is there a least worst option for, for medication? Um, well, again, all medicines have side effects and risks, and I suppose it, it's weighing up the risk-benefit ratio, isn't it? So if for whatever reason, through communication and engagement and trying to make someone feel safe, but you've got an emergency presentation that requires attention, then you would or for anybody, whether they had dementia or not, you would respond to that. And if the only way to manage their distress rapidly was medication, then yes, you would, again, by going through the um, principles of the Act, then you'd be acting in their best interests, acting under common law to provide that care and your clear justification for doing so. The, so the two groups of drugs that get used in the community are things like haloperidol or the mm -hmm. benzodiazepines is there a particular preference for one group over the other it depends if someone is acutely or severely distressed then haloperidol 
and lorazepam can be used together or one or the other. But I don't know if you have lorazepam, but haloperidol in a small dose for an older person would, would be used. It's sort of reassuring that you keep coming back to using the act. And it's, it's an act, obviously, that, that I'm aware of, but it's not as present in my mind as it clearly yeah. is in yours. And I'm quite reassured by the fact that, that all of your answers keep referring back to the adults with incapacity. And I'm guessing that's something that, that you do almost sort of instinctively for uh, every patient. Absolutely. Especially when people are in circumstances and they're saying, are we doing the right thing? Should we be doing this? And I, I always refer to the, the five principles. So that's, I suppose, just my bread and butter and looking at person's human rights and using that in everything that I do. I mean, there are really great educational resources called Think Capacity, Think Consent through NESS, which I can send you the link to that if that would be helpful, because that talks about it a, a bit more in depth. But also as well, what I always have in my mind is the dementia standards. And again, I'll, I'll just go through them if that's helpful. So every person has a right to a diagnosis. They have a right to be regarded as an individual and treated with dignity and respect a right to access and range of care and treatments like anybody else, right to be as independent as possible in their community, and a right to have access to carers who are educated in dementia, and finally, end-of-life care and that their wishes are adhered to. So I always work between the standards and the principles of the EWI Act in everything I do. And I think if you think of those in whatever circumstances that you're coming across an emergency situation, then you're upholding their rights and treating them with dignity and respect. It's interesting that those are standards that should be applied for everybody. And the fact that we have to explicitly apply them to people with dementia suggests that certainly at some point in the past their care has been significantly sort of well, well that's right so you or i have those rights so why should people with dementia not have those rights but sometimes the word dementia can provide a stigma but these standards highlight that people with dementia have the same rights as everybody else so you're absolutely right it's just highlighting that that's brilliant. We'll get links to both of those and put them up mm -hmm. with this podcast. The other thing I wanted to touch on, I understand that there's a, a national strategy for Yes, yeah, so due to COVID, the fourth strategy hasn't been released, but we're on the, the third strategy that they run for three years and we're currently on the third strategy up until 2020. Scottish Government did do uh, engagement with carers, professionals and people with dementia and on the 22nd of December, they released what they've called a transition plan. So that's focusing specifically on carers and people with dementia for the next year due to the current climate and pandemic that we're all living through. But the third strategy continues in tandem with what they're calling the transition plan. But again, it focuses on, on a lot of what I've mentioned and people's rights and being able to access services and also recognising that carers have rights. And there's a specific Carers Act as well. 
so they have a right to care and treatment as individuals. I don't know how much of your role is about signposting, but again, I can give you the link to the Alzheimer's Scotland website. And also there's a 24-hour helpline. So if you'd seen a carer at a scene that was very distressed or recognised that they were needing support in their own right, there is a 24-hour helpline provided by Alzheimer's Scotland that they could access. It's really interesting. There's a, a lot of missed opportunities where we could do more in terms of signposting both patients, but also those around the patients to to onward care, to further care and to, to source of information. It's easy just to do the, the absolute mechanics of dealing with an emergency, but miss out on the opportunity to do both a bit of health promotion mm-hmm. and a bit of health And, protection. and just in, you know, if they're distressed, then ensuring that they are receiving help and support in their own right if their loved one has had to go into hospital for whatever reason for emergency care or treatment that you know you're reassured that whatever time or day of night it is they have someone to call if it's in relation to dementia. One of the things we've been asking all of our presenters to do is to give three top tips for dealing with adults with dementia and and Alzheimer's. My suggestions would be it's communication and the actions speak louder than words. So stay calm, a smile, a touch, maintaining eye contact. That would be number one. When you're using words, ask for a, a simple answer and don't ask too many at any time and give the person time to respond. And finally, if possible, engage with relevant others who will know that person and ensure that their wishes are supported and ultimately the person feels as safe as they can. And I know you asked for three, but I'm going to put one final one in. If someone usually wears glasses or a hearing aid or a walking aid, please make sure that they have these because they will be lost without them. Simple but really important to ensure that they have what they need to make them feel as safe as possible. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Thanks so much for coming on to chat to us and share your expertise. We'll pop up links to some of the things that you mentioned and to the Alzheimer's Scotland website with the uh, Okay, well, thanks. Thanks very much for your time. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.